Here's what I want to talk about today. Um, Last week I left after hearing Francis preach, and on one level I was excited to be thankful. Um, I think uh, nobody wants to be around non-thankful people, Um, those no-face people (laughs) that you're kind of like, oh, here comes Todd, Mr. No-Face. And... uh, But at the same time, something has been bothering me all week about this whole issue of thankful. Not because Francis didn't do a great job. I thought he really did do a great job. But sometimes I feel like we we try to will thankfulness. Like we try to go, come on, it's in us to will thankfulness. And we're just going to try to be thankful until we're thankful. And all week long, the thing that hit me was, is the reason I'm thankful or not thankful is not because of my circumstances. The reason I'm not thankful is because of my heart. That's the problem. I tend to be controlled by my circumstances. All of us do. We don't mean to, right? We don't mean to be controlled by our, 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 uh, our circumstances. But I know like this week, I had one of those weird moments with my son. And the thing I love about my son is that he is straight boy. I mean, he kills bugs and wants to show me. I mean, it's just that's... He's a straight boy, but um, we're working through potty training right now, and um, he had to go poo-poo, and uh, so he's like, Dad, I'm like, you go, boy, come on, work it, you know, and so he comes back, and he had a huge smile on his face, and he goes, Daddy, you went poo-poo, right? So, sorry, I'm telling a poo-poo story, but um, I'm like, that's great, and he goes, no, come look, right? And so I'm cruising with him, <laughs> and we're going to go back there, and uh, yeah, let's just say it was on the floor. And I was like, oh, man. And suddenly I became poopy, right? You know, so it's just, but it's this thing in which we don't mean to, but we are very much controlled by our circumstances, even though we try not to be. I think we're controlled by our circumstances because we tend to see the world through our eyes, not through God's eyes. When Paul was talking about this idea of being spirit-filled, what he really was talking about was this capacity and this ability to see the world as God sees the world. I think it's so hard, especially when you're watching the news. I mean, think about it. How often have we seen earthquake? And how often, now there's a, a volcano that exploded in Iceland, and there's a volcano called Washington, D.C., and it's just like this thing in which eventually it just kind of just starts to, to weigh down on us. And, and we think sometimes it's just out there, but sometimes, though, it, it, it lands right here where we are. And it's so hard to keep seeing things as God sees them. See, right now, the major thing that all of us have to understand is God is not on his throne wringing his hands. He's fine. He started this whole thing. He's pulling this whole thing off. He's orchestrating it just how he wants to orchestrate it in spite of who we are. He's weaving it all together. And in the very end, his son, Jesus Christ, will defeat everything that has stood against God and we will enter into this new heavens and this new earth. God is right now accomplishing that. But when all of a sudden you have poo-poo on the floor, you're just, you're, you know, you're forgetting and poo-poo at work and all these things. I've now said that more times than I've ever said that, I think. But it's just this idea, though, that literally do we see things like God sees them. And in Ephesians 5.18, what Paul is talking about, he says, look, these days are so evil. And if we're not careful, he said, we need to, we need to make the most of every single day because if we're not careful, what happens is, is those circumstances start to grab us and to pull us in and to give us wrong insight. And he says, therefore, he goes, look, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, understand what God is doing. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, which leads to sin and more sin and more sin. But he said, I want you to be filled with the Spirit. And the idea behind filled is literally, it comes from this word to fill up a sail. Now, I've only sailed once ever in my life, 
And I was on this lake in Wisconsin. And I had this awkward man moment where my wife and I were on vacation together. And I thought, I'll take my little lady out on the lake on a sailboat. A little tiny thing, right? I don't know what they call them, but tiny. And we get out there, and I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And I'm trying to adjust everything, and I'm trying to get everything all together. And finally, though, you know, like you finally figure it out, and all of a sudden, that sail just filled up. And I had this, like, cool man moment with my wife. I'm like, yeah, baby, how you doing? <laughs> I mean, it's just like, but it filled up, and we were moving, and we were going somewhere. The idea behind being filled with the Spirit, it's the idea comes out of especially like John 3 where Jesus talks about the Spirit blowing and and the Spirit blowing wherever the Spirit wants to blow. And our job is not to try to tell the Spirit where to blow. Our job instead is to get our sails as open and as full as possible so that as the Spirit blows, literally what's happening is, is we are being blown where we're supposed to go. Now here's why I think people aren't thankful and this is the part I've been thinking about. I really think people aren't thankful because we're too busy doing our own thing. I think what we've done is, is we've, we, we've kind of done our own thing and then we get disappointed because we do our thing and then God doesn't come along and we're left there going, wait, where'd, where'd you go, God? What I mean by that is if you look at it over the last eight years or so, There's been lots of us, and all of us have done this, in which we've kind of started to do our thing, and now that we've done our thing and it has trapped us and collapsed on us, now all of a sudden, now is when we want God to show up. We want him to be there, and we're frustrated, and we're disappointed. In fact, I would say that we're disappointed and complain because we've been doing our own thing, expecting God to come along, and God never promised to build our kingdom, never See, for the longest time, all of us in different ways have tried to build our kingdom, and God is not trying to build our kingdom. He's trying to build his kingdom. He never promised to build what we wanted to build. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, the gates of death will not prevail against it. And our job is not to seek to build our kingdom, but is to look at what he's building as his kingdom and to make sure that they're the exact same thing. That's what it means, literally, to be spirit-filled, Now, he follows after that in a very unique way. He shows after this thing, he goes, and then what will happen is, is that there will be singing. Now, on one level, I thought to myself, (laughs) okay, why are you going to sing after that? But then this week, God blessed all of us with the NCAA tournament. (laughs) I was so trying to find an illustration. And here's how it is. I was on a treadmill at 24-Hour Fitness, because, and I hate treadmills, but the NCAA tournament was on, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to run, and I'm going to watch basketball. And so I'm running along, and it was one of the, you know, if you watched any games on Thursday, it was like the best basketball day of all time. I mean, it was just buzzer beaters, and it was so right. And so I'm watching this game, and, and you know it's last second, and all of a sudden, I'm on the treadmill, and I keep bumping into the front of it because I'm starting to get so excited. I'm like, oh, oh. You know, I'm running along, and all of a sudden, this guy goes to shoot, and he goes to shoot, and he goes, he goes up, and he shoots it, and it goes in, and I'm, like, going off to the side, too, and I'm running on the treadmill. All of a sudden, my foot hit the side, and I, the treadmill kept going, and I almost fell. You know, and it's that moment where you look around, like, everything's cool here. Nobody saw, right? I mean, but it was just like, I was so caught up in the moment of what was happening. See, I think the thing we don't understand is that we were designed to get thrilled, If you don't believe me, go to a great baseball game, football game, even a concert. If you ever sat in just like a concert where all of a sudden you just get goosebumps all over the place and when it's all done, what do you do? Everybody stands up and does what? 
they just cheer. See, what he's talking about here is, is when we choose to join God, what we're choosing to do is we're joining him in what he's doing. And the reason that we are all thankful and excited is because God always promises to bless what he's doing, not what we're doing. And when he blesses us out of what he's doing, all we're left to do is we're left to sing and to shout and to have joy. Now, it might get rough. Like, if you think about it, there was a moment with the Israelites in Exodus 14, um, in Exodus 14, all of a sudden, all the people are coming up to the Red Sea, and Moses is sitting there looking at the Red Sea and the people behind him, and they see, and a little ways away, they see uh, the, the, the Pharaoh and his army with the pillar that's kind of blocking it at that point. But we know at the very moment they're standing in front of the sea, all of a sudden, the people start to complain. Moses, why'd you bring us out here? Right? And it's just like, ah. Oh. And then can you imagine the moment when all of a sudden Moses goes, and the sea goes, and everybody goes, dang. And through the sea they go. Now it's so neat because in 1430, they get through the sea, right? And it says they're just like, they're blown away because Pharaoh's army is defeated. And they get to the other side. And you know what the first thing they do is when they get to the other side? They sing. It was like a West Side moment, you know? We killed Pharaoh's army. I mean, it's just like, they got through and it was just like, ah. Not only was Moses and everyone singing, but all of a sudden Miriam starts to sing. In other words, we are designed to do that. The Bible talks about that when God designed the world, he said, it says that the stars in the book of Job, it talks about the stars sang and the angels shouted. Like whenever we see God doing something, there's this thing about us where we just want to cheer. David, early in his, his ministry, uh, he gets done defeating all these different armies and they're coming out to face him. And, and after he defeats him, all of a sudden he comes back into town and everybody starts singing. You know, David's killed his 10,000, Saul's killed his, I mean, it was just another West Side moment where everyone was getting excited. Even David at one point says he got buck naked and starts going to town dancing and singing. Don't advise that, by the way. But David also, in the lowest moments you've ever caught some of the Psalms, oh my goodness. I was reading Psalm 13 this week in which David literally, he's just saying, he uses this word, this Hebrew word, it's an automatopoeia, just, God, where are you, is what it is. I keep looking for you, God. My enemies are coming all around me, they're going to win. But the end of every single one of David's laments was, but God, I know you're going to win. And he writes songs. See, when God designed this world, he designed it with a song within it. We're a group of people that are designed to sing. Even in the book of Luke, I hope you've been reading it, all throughout the book of Luke, what do they do? Especially the front part. I mean, Mary, she finds news. What does she do? She sings. Zechariah. All these different people start singing. The angels start singing. In other words, when they find out this news, it's just built within us. When we get excited, we sing. But not just in these good moments, but even in Acts 16, Paul is put in jail. He's there with Silas, and, and they're sitting there in the midst of just some of the worst moments, and all of a sudden it says in, in the book of, of Acts that they started to sing hymns. They just knew that God was in control. Even at the very end, when everything is all said and done, you know what we're going to do? We're going to sing. Now, for some of us, it'll be so good to be in a new heavens and new earth because you're just like me. You shouldn't be singing, right? <laughs> you're the one that I, I grew up, I drove tractors. That's what I did. I grew up in Wyoming. And when the tractor is really loud and the radio's up, I would sing loud. <laughs> when they was off, I would sing quiet. 
But there's something within us that causes us to sing. Now, the big question that we have to ask ourselves then is how do we join God? And one of the books that we're gonna go to is we're gonna go to 1 Corinthians. You can go and go, go there with me. And we're gonna look at how it is that I'm gonna be joining God. What is it that I need to be doing to be able to join God and what he's doing so that I can have the correct attitude and so I can have the correct heart? Now, the first thing that we need to understand about the book of 1 Corinthians is that it was a church that was doing their own thing. All throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, the whole story is quit doing your thing and do God's thing. That's constantly what Paul's reminding them of. What they were doing was they were surrounding themselves with teachers that they, they wanted to kind of have to be their own. They were concerned about their own rights. They were concerned about lawsuits. They were concerned about you know, their physical body. They were concerned about marriage. They were concerned about preferences, but not in regards to God, but they wanted it. It was a me thing. Meism just saturates this whole book of 1 Corinthians. And Paul is writing a letter to this group of people saying, would you get your eyes off yourself? Just take them off yourself. They were satiated with themselves. And one of the first things that he puts in front of them, it's so fascinating how he does this, is as he's preaching through this self-satiation, he comes to chapter 1, verse 18, and he takes them to the cross. He gets their eyes off themselves and he says, look, I didn't come and preach to you anything other than Christ and him crucified. That's what I preached to you. I didn't want you to get caught up in meism. I'm not trying to fix your problem. I'm trying to bring you to the Savior. And when you come to the Savior, your problem will be fixed because your problem is not what you think it is. Your problem is, is that you're not right with God. That's your problem. Not only are you not right with God, but you keep having this temptation to go back into the way in which you used to do things. And so chapter 12, he comes along with them and he's gonna talk about the spirit again with them. And one of the things that he talks about, he says, now concerning spirituals, verse one. By the way, it's not spiritual gifts. We've added that word. That word doesn't belong in the original Greek text. It should just be now concerning spiritual things, it should be, brothers. I don't want you to be informed. In other words, I don't want you to be stupid. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by mute idols. Now, here's the thing he's talking about. Before I came to Jesus, I was being led by something. It was so neat. About three weeks ago, I went up to Santa Cruz of Valencia, and um, there was a guy there named Chris Stockwell that I literally, um, I saw him a couple times as we were looking to possibly bring them underneath this until we can kind of help get them uh, uh, kind of... Uh, stabilized and then to, re to release him again. But I met this guy, Chris, and I didn't know who he was, but he walked up to me afterwards and he goes, we've met before. I go, really? He goes, yeah, in Las Vegas. <laughs> what stays, you know, what's done in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> but I just go, I go, really? I go, Vegas? He goes, yeah. He goes, about 17 years ago. I go, Really? He goes, yeah. He goes, the only reason I remember is because you were with a friend of yours who was a basketball player who's like 6'10", a huge guy, and I totally remember you guys. I go, that was me. We were there that long ago. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, you remember when you saw Blake Shaw? And Blake Shaw is the guy that kind of, he led me to Jesus Christ. And, and I go, yeah. I go, we had a beer in one hand and all our chips in the other hand, and I was kind of checking out the whole church thing. I really wasn't even walking with Jesus in the least. And he goes, yeah. He goes, we saw the two of you come around the corner. We saw the two of your drops, your, your uh, jaws hit the floor. And then we didn't know what, weren't sure what to do with it. And all of us kind of had that awkward small talk. And he goes, as we left, 
He goes, Blake looked at us and said, could you pray for those two guys and pray that God would just cause them to absolutely hate their sin while they're in Las Vegas. Oh, did I hate my sin. I turned 21 that year. 21, young man, Vegas, bad thing. And in a dirty bathroom in the Mirage, boy, God brought me to my knees where I just didn't want the drugs, the alcohol, all that stuff anymore. And I go, you guys pray for us. He goes, yeah. He goes, that's what's so weird. He goes, to see my prayer answered 17 years later when I met you blows my mind. I was a pagan. Now, sometimes we say pagan, we're like, oh, yeah, you was a pagan. That's right. <laughs> A pagan is just anyone that's just carried away by this world. Paul talks about it in Romans 6. He he talks about it, this idea that we're slaves to our sin. A sin that doesn't lead us anywhere. What it does is it leads to death. And Paul's talking to these people. In fact, go with me to 1 Corinthians 6, what he says about them early in their life, about their paganness. 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 9, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's who we used to be. See, this whole thing that he's laying out, if we're ever going to get God's eyes on the world, we have to truly be able to look at what was our old life and leave it behind us, that life that was of no good, that life that was just an absolutely terrible master in our life. In fact, Jesus, it's so fascinating, in the book of John, he says to him, look, take off that old yoke, put on my yoke. My yoke is different, it's light, it's not burdensome, and it has life to it. Do you get that when we came to know Jesus Christ, we took off a nasty burden? Oh, gosh, and when I talked to that guy, I saw just images of my past flooded into my mind. I mean, I left there on cloud nine being reminded of who I used to be and what God has done in my life now. Paul says if we're ever gonna get our eyes to be able to see what God is doing on this planet, we have to truly leave it behind and go back to 1 Corinthians 12. Not only do we have to leave it behind, But we have to understand what we're leaving behind. Therefore, I want you to understand verse 3, chapter 12, verse 3. I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. In other words, leave behind that life that literally was making Jesus accursed, that life that was telling God, skip you, I don't want you anymore. And he says instead, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. In other words, what I need to now embrace is I need to leave that life that said Jesus was accursed, that life that had a yoke upon me that was all about my sin and my paganness, and instead I'm to embrace this new thing where I had an old master that was bad, and I need to embrace this new master, Jesus is Lord. Now in our circles, kind of Jesus is Lord is kind of a who cares statement. Yeah, yeah, Jesus is Lord, I'm cool with that, but you gotta understand something, listen to me. At that time period, when someone proclaimed Jesus as Lord, it was huge. 
What they would do is, is these early converts to Christianity, they would come in front of their friends, their family, everyone, and before they got baptized, they would renounce their old citizenship and this idea of being Caesar is Lord, Julius Caesar being that first one that passed it down. And at the time that Paul's writing, a guy named Nero was the emperor. He was the Caesar. If you know anything about Nero, he's the one in 64 AD that decided to grab a bunch of Christians and light them up like torches in his garden to blame them for the burning of what happened in Rome. And when this group of people would stand at their baptismal confession, they would stand in front of their friends and family and proclaim to everyone, I renounce this lifestyle, this old lifestyle. Jesus will now be my Lord, and I will now submit myself to that government with everything that I am, how Jesus calls me to, but they are no longer my Lord. Jesus is my Lord. And it changed their life drastically. To proclaim Jesus as Lord was to tell the whole world, I don't care about anything else. You can take away my job. You can take away everything. It does not matter because I want to follow Jesus. Now, here's the first point if we're going to ever be able to see things like God sees them. We have to be a group of people that understand who the boss is. When you make yourselves the boss, the Bible is always clear. You will make a mess of your life. When Jesus is the boss, it may get rocky and it may be tough at different times. But the idea literally is who is the master, who is the king, is what Paul is going to say here. If we're ever going to understand what it is God's doing on this planet, that's the first thing we have to understand. Now, here's the second thing. Go with me to verse 4. He says, Not only that, but he says there's varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Look at verse 11. And all these are empowered by the one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. See, the spirit is moving. And when you and I came to know Jesus Christ, first of all, we were baptized, the Bible talks about, into this body. We were taken, placed by God. We were immersed into this amazing body, the, the body of Jesus, it talks about, his body. And not only that, but now we're able to be filled, we're able to be satiated so that we can know what we're supposed to do. But then God, not only did he bring us into this body, but he did something so unique, and the Bible talks about as he handed out gifts to every individual, every one of us. Now, the way that he uses it here when he talks about these varieties and these each individual ones that he has, and here's the second thing you've got to understand. Not only do you have to understand who Lord is, but you need to understand once you come to know Jesus, you are unique and unlike any individual on this planet. No one else is like you. The gifts that he talks about in Ephesians 4, it says, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men and he gave them for a strategic purpose. He gave them not to be used for my thing, but to be used instead for something bigger, to be used for his kingdom. See, generally what happens is, and it kind of is this way, it's almost like this person that goes off and they love being with God alone, and they construct their own little spiritual house over here and miss the fact that we're not supposed to construct our own little spiritual houses. We're supposed to do something so different and so unique. In fact, we're supposed to spend our time figuring out how to put our energy towards the building of what God is doing on this planet. I think the thing that I struggle with the most when I think about it this way is that I forget, I don't think because I want to forget, I think just because I get so stinking busy. We don't mean to, do we? 
Like next thing we know, it's like we're all going a million miles an hour. In the midst of going a million miles an hour, we just start to react. And when we just start to react, all of a sudden life just kind of carries us away. And as life carries us away, we start building something, but we just don't know what we're building. I think I see this all the time when I work with people, that, especially in regards to their children. Everyone always says to me, oh, just wait till you get teenagers. But it passes fast. And all of a sudden, these ones that were these little cute little two-year-olds, suddenly they're kind of living their own life and they're doing their own thing and it just time passes and it gets away from us and we didn't mean to, but we forgot what we were supposed to put in our children the most. We were busy doing our jobs and we gotta do our jobs. But even too, I've noticed that even inside of like marriage, when Paul gets to this, this point where he, in, in Ephesians 5, where he says it should hit the ground with your marriage, I'll tell you what, the major reason that marriages are falling apart has everything to do with two individuals trying to build their kingdom and forgetting that their job is not to build their kingdom but to join one another and build the kingdom. That's what we're trying to build. And in a very cool way, I think, it's almost kind of romantic. I know that sounds weird, it's like romantic. You know how like working together, striving together towards the building of the same thing is just this thing that draws you together. My son, even when you move it down into the kids' lives, I'm going to move to a non-poop story. We were, uh, yesterday, we were going to climb uh, Chumash Trail. And uh, up we're going. And uh, my son, we started off the day killing a bug. And as we're climbing up the trail, what every kid does when he sees a rock, what does he do? He, he's got to throw it, right? Do you know how many rocks are on that trail? <laughs> and I'm like, son... We must get to the top. <laughs> Not Josiah, man. It's like, Daddy, whew, Daddy, whew, Daddy. And I'm like, yes, fine. You know, I'm, <laughs> we got to accomplish the thing. See, when we start to think about our kingdom and what we're trying to do, we forget about what's most important. With our kids, boy, they, they're sinners and we're sinners. And as we struggle through this whole thing, if we don't remember who is the Lord and who's the one that's the boss and what kingdom that we're building, oh my goodness, we get frustrated. But the thing that he hands us that's so neat here is he made us unique. And the thing that he made us unique, if you look at that word, look at verse 7. The word is manifestation. You see that word, Manifestation. That word manifestation, what it means is to make something visible. In 1 John 4, 12, it says, we haven't seen God. No one can see God. But then he says, literally, by how we love one another, people will start to see God. The way in which God makes himself visible to this world is not through all these various things. He manifests himself inside of the body for the purpose of demonstrating who he is to the planet. He could have done it any way. Um, he, he made the stars that are, that are gonna proclaim his glory. He made all these various things, but then what he did was is he made us unique and through us he's demonstrating to the world, he's manifesting to the world, this is who I am. And he pulled this whole group of people together and he made them diverse. It says literally there's these various kinds. In other words, he pulled everyone from every distinct place and he's pulling them together out of this group of people to demonstrate who he is. My neighborhood that I live in, we, we get together all the time. And one night we were sitting there and I looked out of him and said, do you realize that the only reason we get together is Jesus? There's no way any of us would ever get together besides Jesus. 
but it spoke such an amazing gospel that through this group of people that have all these distinct backgrounds and various things come together and they manifest themselves to the world. But the other thing that he does here in verse seven, he says he does it, he manifests himself for the common good. I love that word. The common good means he gave us these gifts not for ourselves, but he gave it so that we might come alongside of others. See, the ship that we're on is not my ship. We're not sailing around on a bunch of little dinghies. We're part of this group of people that are being blown along by the Spirit, and all of us, our job is is to figure out where is the Spirit of God moving, and our job is to join the Spirit of God where He's moving, and we're to do the best we can to align our sails, and the purpose of the body, this common good people, is to come alongside of one another and to help one another to get our sails together so that as God is moving, He's pushing us forward as a church. It's not an individual thing. Too long we've made this individual, but no, it's something so much bigger than that. He doesn't reveal himself through some individualistic experience. He doesn't doesn't reveal himself through, through anything other than the fact that he reveals himself through his body, through all of us together. When I was a kid, I used to play trumpet, and I was terrible. And I would sit, and I would be like, and I'm practicing along. And you know when you're a little kid, I don't know if you've ever been to a little kid concert where afterwards you have to tell them it was good even though it wasn't? (laughs) But then, have you ever been to like a massive Philharmonic before? Where if you just listen to one of those instruments, it may not be impressive, but all of a sudden when all those instruments start to blow together, it is absolutely amazing. What's happening here is that solo is good, but the symphony sounds better is what Paul's talking about. If we're ever gonna know what God wants us to do, the thing you gotta understand is is that we don't see everything and we need other people to come alongside of us and help us. We need the body. In fact, he goes on later and he says, look, sometimes some of us are hurting and sometimes some of us aren't and the moment we don't think we need each other, it is the most arrogant thing on the planet and it no longer displays to God exactly who he is. In fact, I believe deep in my gut that the reason we don't see more supernatural things happening inside of the church is because we really don't believe how much we need one another. We've chosen instead to go get ourselves involved in all these various different things and we miss out on what God might be seeking to do supernaturally through this group of people. We don't need the various gifts he lists down here in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. We don't need them anymore because we're no longer interacting with one another anymore. And the thing we forget, listen to me while everyone's here. We need each other desperately. And we need you. And the problem is, is we've done church like this. We've kind of done it in this big, massive room is that it's a good thing, it's a very good thing. And in fact, the gift that Paul's gonna talk about in chapter 14, the prophecy gift, the gift of speaking in public, that, that is the greatest gift in this kind of a forum. But the problem we've done is we've made our Christianity about this when God intended Christianity to be a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week reality in which we operate out there. That's when all these gifts start to come to the surface. 
These groups of people that get to know one another, see that common good thing says, in other words, we, it demands intimacy. It demands that we get close together. Now, real quick, one of the things that I believe that I need to confess to all of you as a leader is that over the last year, probably one of the more difficult years of my life, and I think for a lot of people they found that, I was trying way too hard. I was so desperate to get a cornerstone loving each other that I forgot it's not my job to get you to love one another. I can't do that. We try to organize things, try to do various things, try to piece different things together. I don't have to cause you to love one another. My job is to draw you to God, and as you draw to God, you will love one another. We make that mistake all the time. I do it. In our lives, what we're doing is, is we're literally, my job as a leader is to bring you alongside of where God is moving, help you position your sails, help all of us position our sails, and to watch out what God might do through us. I am so excited about this year. I really am. I'm excited because I believe God is doing things that we have no clue about. I believe God, through his spirit, is moving along. And my job as a teacher is to grab this amazing word of God. And Francis is to grab it. All of us are to grab it. And to teach it to you so that you can know how best to open your sails. And to help you get into pockets of people to live together. See, the reason that we move to neighborhoods, just so that everybody knows, let me just, let me just kind of explain it out for you just a little bit so you can understand our heart. And I, again, I am so sorry for the way we push certain things. But inside of your neighborhood is where your family is. For the longest time, I thought I could just make my workplace my mission field, which it is. It's a phenomenal place to do a mission. But Paul in Ephesians 5 wants to make sure that we understand your job is not to do your mission alone, but the one person that I'm supposed to have closest to me is my wife. My wife doesn't go with me to work. My wife doesn't go with me to events. My wife lives at 3661 Woodhaven, and that's the place where Todd's job is to go and to demonstrate to her what is the mission of God and what is God doing so that we might open our eyes to see what God is doing and to join one another in this process. For years and years, the church has taken and has moved men and women apart. And when we've moved men and women apart, I believe we've hindered what the Spirit is doing because husbands and wives weren't meant to be apart. They were meant to be together. And in meaning to be together, they were to join one another. And this is what I mean. It's almost romantic. I really believe there are wives. Men, please listen to me. There are wives that are dying for you to get engrossed in what God is doing and to ask them to come along with you in what God's doing here. I believe it deep in my gut. I believe women have been designed to do it. When God made Eve, he made her as this helper to help Adam in what God had called him to be about. That didn't in any way diminish her. In fact, what it did was is it made the thing beautiful. It made them a team. It made them able to fulfill their roles. Where your family is, fellas, is in your neighborhood. The neighborhood wasn't just to push everybody there, but Paul wanted to make sure that everyone understood, are you helping your wife to open her sails? Are you coming alongside this precious one? In fact, in, in, in 1 Peter 3, 7, he calls her a co-heir of Christ. In other words, that is daddy's little girl. That's God's little girl. Are you coming alongside of her and, and helping her? Wives, are you coming alongside of your husband as stubborn as you might be and helping him to open his sails? 
Are you helping him literally to be able to be this guy that was designed by God to be able to, to lead the family in the way it should go? But not only that, but moms and dads, are you teaching your kids the mission? Last night, I went in over my kids and I prayed for them. I know you parents do. I don't want to just, I'm, I want to see them come to know Jesus, but don't you want your kids to just be these radical followers of Jesus? Don't you want them just to buy in completely to what Jesus has called them to be about? No matter what. But the problem is they will only be as radical in their following of Jesus as mom and dad are in their following of Jesus. In other words, now, if we're going to teach our kids how to do this, they need to watch mom and dad doing what they're doing. Where the Spirit's blowing and they're watching mom and dad learn how it is in the world we're going to join the Spirit of God and what he's doing, whether it's at baseball games or, or whatever thing it is that we do. We're worried less about the competition of the sport and we're worried way more about helping my kid to understand life. We're helping our kids to gain a greater picture of what God is doing on this planet. That's what our job is. That's why I'm so excited because I really believe there are people in here that are going to grab that vision and they're going to run with it. And what's going to happen is, is we're going to raise up generation after generation of radical followers of Jesus Christ. Those that love Jesus with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. I believe there's guys in here and women in here in their business that are going to do amazing things in their businesses because they're going to quit making the business about building their kingdom and about building the better kingdom, God's kingdom. I believe there are people in here, husbands and wives, that their marriages have been a wreck. And by the way, play, please pray for our church. We've got marriages that are just a wreck. Pray that God would do such a movement in people's lives that people would quit living for themselves, quit living for their kingdom, and instead this couple would gain this great, this joyful understanding of what God is doing on this planet, and they would join them, and these husbands would take massive steps of faith to lead their family into that kingdom. And here's the last thing before I quit. It's gonna be okay. When God spoke this whole thing into existence, he was in charge. And it doesn't matter what's happening on this planet, our God is in control. It doesn't matter what happens in Washington, God's in control. It doesn't matter what happens in South America, God is in control. It doesn't matter what happens with all these various things because God is in control. There's gonna come a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that God was in absolute control. If you're someone sitting here today, let me just be real clear, who hasn't submitted to Jesus, that's still trying to wear that yoke around you of trying to strive to make this life work and it's not working, today's the day to take that yoke off. Jesus died so that you don't have to face that anymore. He died so that you can enter into now this relationship with him and take his yoke upon you because it's light and it's easy. Now, I don't mean it gets easy from the standpoint of the way is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. I'm not saying that. But quit striving after it. Not only that, but in this world of trying to gain understanding of where we're going, some of you haven't been baptized. Today's the day you need to get baptized. And finally, to finish this, don't forget, Jesus wins. Amen. Amen.
Jesus wins. Jesus is going to come a day where he's going to take death and Hades and Satan and he's going to take them all and he's going to throw them into the lake of fire. After he throws them in the lake of fire, we're going to enter this new kingdom and this new heavens and this new earth. And can you imagine the first breaths of life when you enter the new kingdom? So, everybody with me, just take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. All right? Now let's sing like we honestly believe that it's going to be okay.